Uh, but Dr. Alan Ehler, who is the the dean of the school, the Barnett School of Theology and uh, and Ministry at Southeastern University. Who he and his wife Kira are members of our church here. They're, he's going to be filling in tonight. He's going to just got a great message in store for you. So be sure to give him a big round of applause when he comes up here in just a few minutes. There's nothing like the name of Jesus. And so thank you to the worship team. They always lead us in incredible anointed worship, don't they? Let's give them one more prayer to say thank you. And my role is Dean of the Barnett College of Ministry and Theology at Southeastern. I get to oversee 27 full-time faculty that teach Bible, ministry, theology, missions at both the graduate and undergraduate level, and this will be starting my fifth year. It has been an incredible joy. Uh, that job involves connecting with a lot of different churches and a lot of travel, so we're not able to be here, but Victory is our home church, usually Lakeside Village in the morning. And I always love coming out Sunday night because I know there's going to be a special work of the Holy Spirit here. There is so many other things that you could be doing, but you come tonight because you know God's going to meet you, don't you? You know there's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And, and there is something unique about tonight's message. It, it, it's been a while since I've done this. I pastored for many years up in Washington State. And I remember a few occasions in which I'd be woken up in the middle of the night, basically with a message from God saying, what you thought you were going to preach, throw it out. I've got something else for you. And I remember one of those in particular, and we just had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, an altar time that just extended such a touch of the Lord. And I don't know exactly what God wants to do tonight, but he had been burning in my heart a message and an idea. I didn't know how it would get formed, but when Pastor Dan gave me the call and invited me to speak, I knew that tonight was to be that night. And it's a simple concept. It's a simple idea, the name. You ever heard the expression, what's in a name? You know where that comes from? It comes from Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. And Juliet says it to Romeo, and it's followed by the very famous expression, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. In other words, if you called your, your rose a violet or a thorn, whatever, it's still going to smell like a rose. The name doesn't matter. And her point is, it doesn't matter that you're a Montague and I'm a Capulet. We, you know, we love each other. Our love should transcend our family boundaries. But as you know, as that story goes, the names did matter. And in reality, for us, names matter, don't they? It's often said that the sweetest sound to anyone's ears is the sound of their own name. Has there been somebody who's remembered your name and it meant a lot to you when they called you by name? But then how about if they didn't call you by name? When I was a young man, I, like a teenager especially, I was convinced that deep hole in my heart would only be filled when I found that perfect girl. But I was so shy, I was so scared, I thought I was a geek. I couldn't even talk to these girls that I would have fantasies about. And you know, I'd see them at school and I'd run the other direction. Finally, towards the end of my senior year of high school, I got a little bit more bold in going that direction. But then God met me, age 18, put my life on a different course altogether. And I found that deep hole, that wasn't going to be the girl that was going to fill it. That was only made for Jesus. He called me to ministry, pointed me a different direction. But I was having, uh, I was, uh, got my undergrad in civil engineering through an Air Force ROTC scholarship. And that meant I had to serve and do a lot of roles. Towards my senior year, that meant that I had to sit at the head table of a big banquet called a dining out. And there were four senior cadets who had to sit up there, but there were eight chairs. Guess why? You had to have a date. 
And I was still a little bit shy, and I was still very single, but I had gotten to know some girls. Now, in our, sc- our school was all male. It was an all-male engineering school in Terre Haute, Indiana, but across town, there was Indiana State University, and I met a few different Christian girls over there, and I remember making a list as my last dining out was coming up. Who would I ask to be my date for that, that dining out? And I came up with, well, I wanted somebody who was a Christian. I mean, that was going to be important. It would really help if she had a nice personality. And uh, be, you know, of course, nice. She was cute, too. I didn't know that'd be a possibility or not. And I knew I had this ministry call. I didn't know. I mean, it was just a date. Who could say what would happen beyond that? So I made a list of all the girls that I knew. And there was name, one name that came very close to the top of the list. I mean, at the top of the list immediately. Nobody else was there. No question whatsoever. Because I had seen her. And talked to her at a few different events. In Bible studies, she'd come to our InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group. And every time I talked to her, she just had this joyful exuberance that just came out of her. And she was talking about all these people she had led to faith in Christ. And all, all this stuff that God was doing in her life. And I thought, wow, would there be a chance in the world that she would go out with me? I didn't know. You know, I, I just kind of had this hope and this dream. Maybe. So I thought, how would I be able to ask her out? And well, our university meeting was on Friday nights. Her Campus Crusade for Christ meeting was on Thursday night. I could go over there to her campus, and maybe, just maybe, I'd get a chance to talk to her there. So I went over that night, and they were doing a uh, talent show. And so her group, she and two of her friends were doing a rap on the four spiritual laws, which if you're involved, anybody heard of Campus Crusade for Christ? Four spiritual laws, that's the core concept, the gospel message in a little booklet to lead anybody to faith in Christ. So there she was in her little painter's pants and her painter's cap turned the other direction, getting up going, well, I won. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And doing that with her friends and it was great and, you know, it's fun. And then somebody sang and somebody did a skit and then they did a meet and greet time and I thought, okay. If I'm going to have a chance, this is going to be it. My one hope, if this is going to happen, this is going to be it. And I saw her over on the other side of the room, and, and my heart was beating like crazy because, you know, what if she said no? What, what if she gave me a crusty look? I, I, I didn't know. So I walked over there, and the closer I got to her, she saw me, she turned, she looked at me, and she smiled. And I was like, oh, all of a sudden my heart was beating even more, even more, even more. And I went up to her and, and reached out my hand to greet her. And she looked at me and she said, hi, Randy. <laughs> my name is Alan. Well, I thought her name was Kira. It turns out it's Kira, K-E-I-R-A. So hopefully we got that resolved real quickly. She invited me to join her group afterwards, the campus covered, and hang out there. And I did invite her, and she decided to go with me uh, to the uh, dining out. And then a year later, I invited her to spend the rest of her life with me. And now 30 years later, here she is. And it's been a joy, and I'm sure glad she didn't turn me down. But there is something about a name, and it's more, it's more than just a label. I mean, you can name something just to keep things differentiated from one another, but there's something about a name. That Pastor David and the team led us in a whole lot of songs tonight that all featured this concept of the name of Jesus. Call on his name. What a beautiful name it is. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And when you think about it, you spend any time in church at all, you'll hear this phrase over and over again, in the name of Jesus. Believe in the name of Jesus. 
and, and several passages throughout the Bible talk about that. But when you think about it in pure English, believe in the name of Jesus, in the name? I mean, isn't the name just a label? And what is it about the name of Jesus? They're just five letters, like any other letters that we might come across, J-E-S-U-S. What's the big deal about that? Well, tonight I want to let you know what the big deal is about that. And you may hear some stuff you've all heard before. Some of you, I mean, you guys are Sunday night Christians. I mean, you are, most of you, dedicated, mature believers. You know the Bible backward and forward, and maybe you're not going to learn anything. But maybe you will. And even if you have heard it before, it never hurts to be reminded. And I pray that our faith would be taken to a new level as we have a deeper understanding of what the name of Jesus means and what it represents for us and why these songs we sing have such an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon them because there is something about that name. But let's start with the Old Testament. The word in Hebrew is the word shem, Shem. And it first occurs in Genesis chapter 2, and it's talking about the names of rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden. And the word in Hebrew, Shem, pretty much means like our name. It's a label. It's a differentiating characteristic. If your name is Joe, we don't call you John because Joe is you. That's how we keep you straight. And so we know the, the, these rivers because of their names. But it conveys more than just a label, and we see it next in that same chapter where Adam is invited by God to name the animals. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's Shem. And notice, Adam had the right to give them names because Adam was the highest of all created beings. He was given authority, and God gave him that in chapter 1. This idea you were going to, to, to fill the earth and subdue it, this idea of the earth being in submission to you. And because you have authority, that's why you give it the name. You as parents, you named your children. It was your right in your authority to name your children. And it was up to them to respect you. Don't you wish they did all the time? I mean, that, but that's the idea, the concept. You're in that position of authority, but it was also his responsibility. However, the word got used elsewhere later on for the concept of worship. First of all, in chapter 4, Talks about Adam's son Seth. To him was also born a son. His name was called Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that phrase gets used a lot throughout the Old Testament. And it's an idea of intentional worship. Notice we see that people were worshiping before then. But the writer of Genesis is pointing out there was something that was going on. If you're going to call on someone's name, you need to know something about them. I'm going to call on Dan and say, Dan McBride, right now, I know something about Dan McBride. He's here, his identity. And I may or may not have a relationship, but it's getting very specific. And what, what Genesis is telling us is people began to cultivate focused, intentional worship. If only they'd kept that way because we had to have the flood just a couple of chapters later. But then as we move on to chapter 12, we'll see that God called Abram, later known as Abraham, in verses 1 through 3, 
But then down in verses 7 through 8, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. The implication was that Abraham began focused, specific worship to the Lord. And we'll see, notice how if in your Bible, it's usually capitalized capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes you'll have it capital L, small o, small r, small d. That's because they are different words. The ones in all capitals is a personal name. It's a personal name for God. It's not you're just praying to God as some general concept, some ethereal something out there. No, you are praying to a specific individual personality. Yes, he is God, creator of everything, but he has a personality. He is specific. No other gods are the God who has created everything. He is the Lord in our Bibles, as it gets translated. And he revealed himself later to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in chapter 28. Remember the story of Jacob's ladder singing that song. said, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Notice here, I am the Lord. Again, it's a personal name. The God, and that's the word Elohim, sometimes abbreviated El in Hebrew, and it means a general concept of an eternal being or deity. But the Lord is a specific one, and notice also the Lord identifies himself by relationship with Abraham and Isaac, and he connects himself with those people who call upon his name. We enter into relationship, and that gives us the right to call on his name. Now, that Hebrew word that gets translated capital O, capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we don't even know how to pronounce because the Jews stopped pronouncing it for fear of breaking the third commandment, as we'll see a little bit later. And yet, we got to have a general sense of this and how it works. You may see it up here on the screen behind me, that bottom thing right there. It's Yahweh or Jehovah. It's four letters in Hebrew. Hebrew in its purest form does not have any vowels. It's Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. It could be pronounced either way, Yahweh or Jehovah, one of those. And that was his specific name. And notice later in Jacob's life, he still understands the significance of the name. This is the occasion later on. Remember, he had the falling out with Esau, went away, lived with Laban, his uncle, for many years, came back with two wives, a very wealthy individual by their standards. But he knew he was going to meet Esau the next day. And he wrestled. He had a wrestling experience. It says in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? Once again. And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. 
And thus the nation of Israel today traces its words, its name to this point in time, the one who struggles with God. Jacob was renamed. He understood that. Remember, the one who does the naming is the one who has the authority. So then what does Jacob do in response? Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he doesn't get an answer. But he did get a blessing. You see, in the Old Testament, God was the one who would reveal himself to people and take that initiative. We see that in the book of Exodus. Chapter 3, at the burning bush. Remember Moses tending his, his father-in-law's flock, seeing that, that bush that burned but was not consumed, went over to see it. And God called to him from inside the bush, told him to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. And down in verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, this is Ahiyah Asher Ahiyah. And the Ahiyah is, is very similar in its structure and its meaning to the Yahovah or the Yahweh. It's the same concept there, the eternally existent one. I am that I am. And God communicates himself. And that significance of what took place in the burning bush was then later communicated as Moses brought the people back to that mountain in the wilderness after they had been set free from slavery. And God had called Moses up on the mountain and gave him the Ten Commandments the third of which is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now think about that. Isn't that an interesting command? If you only had ten commands, why thou shalt not take the name in vain? Now if you grew up in church, most of us Protestants, we have the idea that that's saying some kind of a curse word and we put some sort of name and you know, use God's name as a curse word. That taking it in vain? Sure, absolutely. Hebrews, Jews, Israelites, they have tended to think it's using it somehow wrong. They weren't even sure what the command meant. That's why they don't even say it. But a lot of scholars of Hebrew tend to think what it means is don't treat it like it's some sort of a magic incantation. And above all, don't treat it loosely or lightly. And again, it's not just the word. It's what the word represented. And what we see throughout the Old Testament, and we won't have time to go through, there are, there are thousands of occurrences of the name of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. It gets used over and over and over again, 6,288 times. Now, I'm not going to keep you that late tonight. But let me just summarize what, what it means as we get kind of this general sense. It is an identification of which God do you serve. It is the personality, the existence of God as a person. But it's also when you speak the name of the Lord, when you call upon the name of the Lord, it's an act of submission. Like you ever need help? Anybody ever have AAA? You're stuck by the roadside and you pull out your phone and you call AAA. Why? Because you know they can help you. There's this sense of calling upon the name of the Lord acknowledges his power and his ability to help us. But it also says, if you're going to help me, I submit myself to you. I put myself under you. You are my Lord and my master. You are the one that I will follow always. 
It also communicates relationship. And that's part of what taking the Lord's name in vain was, trying to use it without being in relationship. We'll see an example of that in the New Testament. Provision as well, the idea that God will take care of you because you are his. He is your God. But the name also communicated purpose. Remember in the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament, names were not just given on accident. Names were packed with meaning, and there was something there. So even to this, this day, if you ever go to a, a, a synagogue or a messianic congregation, you will hear this expression. They do not say Yahweh or Jehovah. They will typically replace it with the, the word for capital L, small o, small r, small d. That is Adonai. It is more of a title, meaning master. But you will hear the expression, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And indeed, that's the case. But now let's transition to the New Testament. Because we see something interesting take place. That same elevated status of the concept of the name, of something happening in the name, of there being power in the name, of relationship, identity, provision, all of those things now transition to another name we see first given to us in chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. Of course, you remember that that. God came and Mary conceived that child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph heard about it. His first initial reaction was, whoa, people are going to think we messed around before we got married. Uh, I've got to let her go. I've got to divorce her. That's, that's got to happen. But then an angel appeared to him and said to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. And for the first time, we will see this name that occurs over and over and over again throughout the New Testament with this idea. Notice, once again, not by accident. The angel says there's a specific reason he will save his people from their sins. And I'd like to let you know how we got the name Jesus. If you go back into the Old Testament, you take the concept of Jehovah or Yehovah, save, Shua. Then the Hebrews often did what we sometimes do in our language, and that's make a contraction. Like you ever think, you ever say can't instead of cannot or don't instead of do not? We put a little hyphen in there to like, or apostrophe to, to show it's a contraction. Well, Hebrews did that all the time, and they did it with names quite a bit. So you had Yehovah, Shua, the Lord is salvation, packed together, Yehoshua, Yehoshua. We know it as Joshua, the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. And that's what his name meant. But later on in Israel's history, it got abbreviated again to Yeshua, still meaning the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. Yeshua is cured several times in some of the later books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus' name, and probably his parents spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic at home and probably called him Yeshua, come take out the trash. You know, that would have been his name that he would have been called by. But the thing is, what we have in the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, although some say that he, uh, Matthew may have originally written his gospel in Hebrew. What we have is written in Greek. And there's different rules in Greek than there are in Hebrew. It's a different alphabet altogether. And if you have the equivalent of an A at the end of a name, guess what it means? 
It's feminine. So you don't have a Yeshua if the, if the person's a man. And if you are a man, guess what you have at the end of your name? The equivalent of an S, a sigma. So the sigma had to be put in there. You also don't have the J or the Y to make a Y. So you had to put an I, an iota, and an epsilon to create the Y sound that was in there. So what Yeshua became Jesus. And this is how Jesus' name was spelled in, in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. The idea was there. But then, later on, of course, the church center of influence moved to Rome. And there was a, a Roman scholar named Jerome in the late 300s who translated the Bible into Latin known as the Vulgate. Now, in Latin, they did have a word that they could use uh, that way, but they went ahead and kept it I-E-S-U-S. We use the Latin alphabet. That's where we get our letters. But they didn't use the J the same way that we use it or the Y, and so they kept it the I. However, the Germans did use the J. Anybody ever study German in school or go over to Germany? If you want to say yes to someone in German, what do you say? Ja. But how do you spell ja? You don't spell it Y-A. You spell it J-A. And so the Germans to this day still say Jesus. But we Americans and English people, we did what we always do, and we love our J's. We put the J on the front, and we pronounce our E's instead of ye. We pronounce the E and say Jesus. And that's the name. That's how the name came down to us. But that name is filled and loaded with meaning for us. And any time we study Scripture, it's good for us to say, okay, but what does that have to do with me? And so as we wrap up tonight, I want to see several points of application for us, what the name of Jesus means for us. And first of all, it means salvation. You know, the most quoted verse in the entire Bible is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Well, let's keep going on there. It said, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, what we think about this, and if you're new to church, I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here tonight. We don't want to assume that this message makes sense to you. But this is the basic message of humanity. Every single person who has ever lived has done something wrong. Anybody here in this room never talked back to your parents? Anybody in this room never told a lie? Anybody in this room never broke the speed limit? I mean, come on. We've all done things that are wrong one way or another. And I mean, like, well, no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. Guess what one wrong thing does? It disqualifies you from relationship with God. It disqualifies you from eternity in heaven. You need to be absolutely, flawlessly perfect to enter into God's heaven in your own merit. And guess what? There's never been anyone who meets that standard except one. And his name is Jesus. And what the message of this passage is, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to pay the price for your sins and mine, to pay the penalty for the wrong that you and I have done. 
And if we believe in him, we are not condemned. But there's no other way we can be set free. There is no other way we can receive eternal life. It's not a matter of pick and choose, of go to your favorite buffet of faith and pick whatever name of whatever God you want to choose to believe in. There is only one name that brings salvation. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. Because he was fully God and fully man. Because he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 quotes from the Old Testament book of Joel. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is one of many, many cases where we see he is specifically referring to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah in the Old Testament, but applying it to Jesus Christ. This is the deity of Christ, one God, three persons. And so much evidence even in the connection of the name and the work of Jesus. And salvation brings so much with it. And one of those things is you are adopted into God's family. I just love John 1.12 but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You take that for granted? You believe in Jesus tonight? You're one of God's kids. I mean, think about that. Think about what that means. Imagine your dad was a multimillionaire. <laughs> what did that mean? You get to use all his stuff, Right? I mean, anybody ever use your, your, your dad's car when you were growing up? You didn't have your own car yet. You didn't have your name on the title. But you got to drive it, right? Why? Because your dad let you. Your dad owned it, but he gave you the authority to use it because you were his kid. If God is your father, what does that mean? You have access to all of his stuff. And he loves you. And he also has a relationship with you. He invites you into his family. <coughs> and that means so, so much to us. And we could go on and see more about that. For example, Jesus, towards the end of his time on earth at the Last Supper, said to his disciples in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And he comes back to it again later on in that same discourse in John 16. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until you, now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. You see, we put that in the name of Jesus and, and at the end of our prayers. Why? It comes back to this. It's not just some sort of tag on. It's not just something we just stick on there in Jesus' name, amen. No, it's saying under the authority we have because of our relationship with Jesus and his invitation to us that as God's kids, we get to go to God and ask for what we need and he will provide it. We don't do that on our own. I can't do that because I'm Alan Ehler. I do that because I'm a God's kid who has this relationship with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's in his name, in his authority and right, I'm able to do that. You know, back before we had the wonders of our communication system and cell phones, the internet, even wired telephones, even telegraphs. If you had a, an empire that spread across a large area, you were the Chinese emperor or the British emperor, whatever the case was, and you had to send a message to your governors and your military commanders, they had to know it came from you. 
They had to know that they could trust. They were hearing from their commander. And the problem was, with thousands of miles to travel, that message would take weeks to get there. It would be easy for the enemy to interrupt and to fake and send a false message. And their, their, the, your army could get caught up and destroyed in the battle because they didn't hear the one command from their commander and their king that they needed to hear. So you know what they did? Even back in the Old Testament era, Persians, what they would do is they had a signet seal. And that emperor had a ring with a special emblem on it that only the emperor had. And he would send a message, roll it up in a scroll or whatever the case may be, put some hot wax on there, stamp the ring so that image was there. So when the commander in the field or the governor would get it, he would see that a seal had not been broken and it had the image of that signet to know, yes, I can trust this. There's only one ring like this that comes from the commander. This comes from the emperor. This comes from the king. But you know, kings were busy. And sometimes, some of those kings had a number two administrator they knew they could trust. And they would say, we need to send messages out to all the commanders. Here's my ring. Go and do this. And when the number two would stamp the signet, everyone else would trust because there was only one ring. And they had the signet. And they received the message with the, the stamp in the seal. And our prayers work very much that same way because that one stamp, that one seal is the name of Jesus. <clears throat> so tonight, some of you here, you're struggling with one thing or another, some issues in your life. And I can just say people are going to be set free at these altars because you're going to come and tonight you're going to pray in the name of Jesus and Jesus will meet you. I have seen him do hundreds of miracles, things that cannot be explained because they have been prayed for under the authority, not just the five letters. It's not just the five letters. It's coming in the relationship and the understanding and the faith that we have access to the God of the universe because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And that involves healing as well. And we see that in Acts 3, 6. Remember the story when Peter went up to the temple and the lame man who was sitting by the gate called Beautiful asking for money. And Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And he got up and started walking. It wasn't even a prayer. It was just simply pronouncing the healing, but it wasn't Peter doing it on his own authority. He did it. He did it in the name of Jesus. My last job in the Air Force before I got into ministry full-time was serving as the executive officer for the civil engineer for all of the United States Air Forces in Europe. That meant every Air Force base from England all the way to Turkey, all of the buildings, the runways, the roads, everything was under his responsibility. He was a colonel, been serving for 27 years. He replaced a general who had been serving for 30, and he had six colonels that worked for him. And he invited me to serve as his executive officer. And that meant I was his right-hand person, basically his runner, his go-to, make everything happen for him. And I was only a captain. That's pretty lowly on the totem pole of military ranks amongst the officers, especially there. But because I was his executive officer, that meant he could say, go up and tell Colonel Smith that I need him to do this, this, and this. Guess what? I'd walk up there. And even though that other colonel outranked me by four ranks, I'd walk in the door and say, sir, you need to do this. The colonel wants you to do this. He'd, oh, yes, sir. I'm going to do that. Why? Because of my authority? No, because I came in the name of my colonel. I came in the name of Colonel Jim Vernon, and he was the one. It wasn't Alan Ehler. It wasn't Captain Alan Ehler. It was Colonel Jim Vernon. 
And that's the authority that we have, and that authority extends to authority over demonic powers. Jesus sent out his 12 disciples in, in, to go out and do some healing ministry and then in Luke 9. But then in Luke 10, he sent out 72. When they came back from their ministry in verse 17, he, they said to him, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And notice that phrase again, in your name. When the Apostle Paul was in Philippi and starting the church, they're going out and preaching. A slave girl had a demon, was kind of tormenting him and following him around, and he became greatly annoyed. He turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out in that very hour. In every case, it's in the name of Jesus and my ministry, it doesn't happen all the time, but there have been several times that I've been able to see people set free who have been demonized. You used to use the expression demon-possessed, but the demon didn't own the person. The demon was simply working in them, and they were under control of that demon. <clears throat> but in every case, the name of Jesus was sufficient enough to see those people set free. I was a brand new Christian, just serving the Lord for two years, and I was just devouring everything I could. And I remember my youth pastor who had led me to faith was talking to me about the power of the name of Jesus in dealing with demonic stuff. And I went on a, a trip to what was then the Soviet Union. I'd minored in Russian in college, and I took a bunch of Bibles in and witnessed and connected with some churches when I was there, just a college sophomore, 20 years old. But I remember that I was aware of just, a, just an oppressive spirit all over that place. You ever been someplace like that? There's just something. And you, it's hard to explain in several places around the world. It, and, and that was, it was so strong there in Moscow. I remember, I think it was my second or third night there, and I had this dream. I, I was like wrestling a demon, almost like Jacob, but it wasn't a godly thing in that point in time. And I just knew somehow in my dream, if I could just say the name of Jesus, it was so hard to open my mouth. And I struggled, struggled, struggled. Finally, I shouted out loud, Jesus! I woke up my roommate. He said, what in the world was that? And I said, oh, sorry about that. But it was enough. It broke the spirit, went back to sleep, and we slept well after that. But there's something about the name of Jesus, isn't it? There is something about his name. But we need to take it another level. It's not just what it means for us, what he can do for us. But it's about if we're going to take on the name of Jesus, what we need to do in response. And the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean? That means that everything we are is committed to him, in submission to him, for him, for his honor, for his glory, empowered by him as we live. Who do you live for? Is it for Jesus? If so, then the final point is the good news. Our eternal destiny is secure. Jesus told the church in Revelation, in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.12, and one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. When you were a kid, did you ever have like a special toy or a basketball or something or maybe a pair of shoes that you didn't want your friends to steal, so you took and you wrote on the bottom, you wrote your name. Everybody would know, Alan, this is Alan's shoe. Showed the ownership, didn't it? What Jesus has promised to you is his name will be on you forever. You are his. 
And then one more final passage as the worship team comes back and we prepare to just respond to what we're hearing tonight. Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of, the God, of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. His name will be on their foreheads. As we close out tonight, I just want to invite you to stand to your feet. And as you do that, as our altar workers come forward and our leaders are ready to assist with prayer. There is power in the name of Jesus. Because of the name of Jesus, we have access to God. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, if we believe in him, we are adopted into his family. We have the right to take our needs to him. We let God know in Jesus' name, on Jesus' authority, because of who he is for us, and God will answer, and God will respond. My father sees today miraculously because of the name of Jesus. I've seen people who walk today because of the name of Jesus. I see marriages in which there is love and hope because of the name of Jesus when they were headed to the divorce courts. I've seen people set free from addiction because of the name of Jesus when all of the self-help groups and 12-step recovery programs were not able to see them set free. There are people who are bound in depression who now live lives of joy because of the name of Jesus. This church here is called Victory Church because we believe there is victory in the name of Jesus. And whatever your situation is tonight, I don't want you to walk out those doors without experiencing that victory in your life. The Holy Spirit of God is present tonight, and we have access to his throne room because of his name. And so as the worship team leads us, I want you to respond in whatever way is appropriate for you. If you've got a problem or a challenge that's bigger than you, I want you to come and join one of these altar workers as they, in the name of Jesus, take it to the throne of God, and God begins to work in your situation. If maybe you're just living in the joy of the Lord, would you praise the name of Jesus? Would you new and afresh give him your life? and everything that you are. And if for some reason you're here tonight, maybe for whatever reason you've never yet come to the place where you have believed in Jesus, where you've never yet called on the name of the Lord, where you've not yet made him your savior, would you make tonight that night? Your eternal destiny is at stake. You can be forgiven. You can know why you're on this planet. You can have a relationship with God and you have a loving family that's going to open up their arms and welcome you here. And if that's the case for you, whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to come down. Come down up front. We want to pray with you. We want you to encounter Jesus tonight. Let's do that. Let's seek him as we pray.